My name is Michael Shreve. I'm a drummer, percussionist, uh, composer, and now artist as well. And you're listening to Talking Blues Podcast. You said artist more recently. How recent are we talking about? Uh, half a year. Oh, uh, well, I've I've become super curious about AI generated art, and um, I'm I'm very excited about it, and and I've been using it a lot, and and so um, I'm trying to get better at that as well. I haven't been so excited about something since like when I started playing drums, you know, and so. I'm I'm trying to find ways where I can, um, you know, use both things. And, I mean, for instance, on my Bandcamp page, new stuff that I'm releasing, I do compilations of my solo work. A lot of people don't know. I'm putting out, like I said before, um, shows that I've done in Seattle that were recorded on that, and and so I'm making the album cover artwork. And, um, and, you know, I just really love doing it, you know, so um, I'm trying to get better at it. And I eventually want to be able to do, um, you know, more like animation with it, not like cartoon animation, but something that I can put my music to. Can you explain that? Like, would you, do you mind talking about this a little bit? Because AI is obviously a hot topic these days. And when you say AI art, I don't know how, what that means and what what what's the process involved in that? Well, um, there's different AI uh, art. I mean, everybody knows Chat GPT, mm-hmm. and that's text AI bot. But um, there's there's a lot of new artificial intelligence art image makers that you use prompts in. You know, you tell what you want to see. You you know actually type it in. And then you keep experimenting with it. I mean, really, it comes down to the prompts, you know. So you get really, you get, you, the, the thing you want to do is learn how to do the prompts so that it does it, it gets more precise and more what your intention is in, in, in creating a piece of art. I'm just learning it, but I'm really excited about it. So, you know, I do, I have a studio here, a, a small room, and um, I've got, plenty of like electronic drums like let me show you for instance like um i will show you let's see if you don't mind no i'd love to see this like is it like you you type in a prompt like boy on a dolphin in the desert or something and it will create this image of a dolphin okay yeah and so at this point when you have an idea how easy is it for that idea to be typed in and to generate that image that's similar to what you might have in mind? Well, it's pretty easy. I mean, you you have a starting point and then you keep refining it, you know. You know, I'm just trying to learn and and um, utilize the tools that are coming rather than be afraid of them. And and plus, I'm just finding great pleasure from it. And I'm, I think as you get older, you know, the, it's important to find new things that you're curious about and that you're excited about 
and spend your time doing them. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm very excited by that. I'm very excited about the music stuff and the music software. And I'm trying to learn these tools so that I'll be able to express myself, you know, um, when I pass the point where I, I don't play drums well. I mean, I'm not Roy Haynes or one of those guys, that, you know, or Elvin that, you know, 80 years playing drums. I really don't have a desire for that. What I do have a desire for as I get older is to use my my rhythmic experience, my knowledge, and my taste to, you know, create music, no matter how I do it. I mean, even in my new records, I do have a record coming out that's real drums, like Drums of Compassion, it's called. Um, this is the one that you've been working on for like 10 years. At least. So now the album is uh, is finished and I have artwork and I'm talking to uh, a label about putting it out. And so, yeah, it's, it's been a long time coming. It's it's my own fault, but um, but it seems like the time is right. So... But just the fact that you're looking for things that you're interested in and that keeps you passionate. Exactly. So my point about aside from that record is music. I'm, I'm working on another record that I'm the drums are going to be the last thing put on. I'm, I'm, you know, working with another guy and I'm working with a lot of computer stuff. It's very beautiful music. It's not complicated, but um, I'm, I'm trying this as an experiment where I get everything in place. You know, I have a percussionist that I hire who's in Germany that I found on Instagram, <laughs> you know, where he posts all kinds of stuff. And I thought, man, this is so cool because it's kind of a universal percussion. He's got all kinds of drums. It's not Latin percussion or African percussion or this or that. And so I'm putting these somewhat esoteric tracks and I'm giving them to him and um I mean they're beautiful tracks to me but to most people they're probably weird you know but but then you put this on and it gives it a whole nother dimension to his percussion and then I will add my drums last to see okay what what texture do I want to add to that and that's a new approach for me because usually the drums are first how do you compose? Because I know you've gotten a lot of composition credits. You describe yourself as a composer. Is it mainly percussive or do you compose with keyboards? Keyboards. Um, and I use um, I use loops and I edit them and alter them and combine them. Um, and And then I add stuff on keyboards and I have other things electronic drums not but they're not just like drum set sounds there are all kinds of sounds and i i work with those things and add them i've got you know like everybody um what they're called as plugins that you put into your digital audio station and there's just more of those things coming out i mean there's too many but you find some stuff that's really inspiring you know it it, it it creates stuff that you would never think. I mean, you still have to, I still have to be on my computer. I mean, my keyboard doing it. And then I'll put something down or I'll put a, a groove down or something. And I'll try to put something interesting on top. And then I'll, I'll collaborate with people. You know, like I have a, a guy who's a sax player named Sam Morrison. Played with Miles Davis for a minute, but never recorded but I find him to be a really talented composer, but not, 
he's always left of center, but he's brilliant. And so I'll give him my basic stuff that I like, this this vibe that I like. And I'll say, try, you know, try to write something on top of, of that, you know. And then we go back and forth and it's a, a process. And then I send it to the guy in uh, Germany to put percussion on. I mean, I'm in the process of this really right now. And then you get a bass player and have him put some stuff. So that's how I'm composing. The way that I look at it is I'll do whatever it takes, you know, and I don't, I don't really care. I mean, people say, oh, you know, we use no loops on this. And I get that whole thing. You know, it's all me created, created, you know, from scratch, you know, but I, I'm not there. I mean, I'm getting better at that kind of stuff, but to me, it, it I don't, I don't care. It, it, even if I am not playing on a track, you know, and that I've written, um, I don't care. You know, it's just as, now I'm more interested in making the music. It's not about me as a drummer, and finding ways to express myself. So that's what makes me excited and spend it all day in the, uh, in this little room here. You know, is that something new? Is that or is that something? Is that the way you were always? You know, it's the way I was always, but now the tools are here. Like, I always loved editing myself, you know. I used to edit Santana tracks, you know, without even telling them, you know. Like, we needed a single, so, you know, like, Oye Como Va or something like that. It was too, because Santana always played long. And so, I mean, I worked with an editor and cut, cut the long version up and edited it into the single what you hear today, you know? And um, I don't know. I'm not technically adept, though, you know? But I'm sort of like scratching and clawing to however however I need to do it to make what I want to make. And, it, and it's all a learning process, so I'll get better at it, too. So you, you talked about the other passion being drums, when did that passion start for you? How did you become interested in the drums? It, it was in eighth grade, and it's kind of a funny story, but um, I got kicked out of my class and sent to the uh, principal's office, either for banging on a desk or trying to be the funny man or something. <laughs> I went down there and, you know, listened to them. I was walking back to the classroom, and I passed the band room. And at the door of the band room was all, all the drums, you know, timpani and snares and all this and bass drums and i i ended up getting trouble again because i i stayed there too long like watching this and that's that's what gave me the thing about drums and that day i i went to a carpet store and took three samples and then i bought some drumsticks and i started that's how i started playing you know and i took lessons um and i you know got pretty pretty serious about it um, am I correct about that for the longest time you really didn't have a full drum kit that you you played your carpet pieces? Man, I went on the road with a, a, a cover band right after high school and I still didn't own drums. I mean, I used to be in bands and this and that, so I would borrow drums. And I, when I was young, I mean, I'd had, I had a paper route and I saved my money and I bought, you know, Japanese snare drums, you know. And so anyway, the kit that I played at Woodstock, I bought 
on the road with that tour um, right after high school, saving up the money from these armory gigs, you know, as a cover band in like South Dakota and Idaho. And, and so I saved my money and, um, and I bought my first set while on that tour. And my first set was that kit from Woodstock. So I was going to other, other people's house and they were letting me borrow their drums and I was practicing and playing. Um, and I would have to borrow drums, you know, and that sort of thing. So it was good, of course, because I had to work for every penny to get my first drums. And, I, and you know, they were precious to me. So um, even when my son, who's uh, a producer in L.A. now, I could have gotten him free drums. I mean, I could have. But I, I said no, you know, so he worked in a drum shop out here in Seattle. And he was too young to be paid, but he could get credit. And so he worked enough where he could buy his first drum set by his job, you know. At what point did you think this is what I what I what I want to do? I would say that um you know, during high school, I I, I was playing everywhere I could. I was taking the lessons. I played in the Police Youth Drum Corps. I was into rudiments. I was into that drum corps sort of stuff. And I played in the symphonic band in high school. And I played in in rock bands and pop bands uh, in high school. When I got to college, I played in big bands. Um, and that was because I was into jazz is what I was into. I was into jazz and I was into R&B, like James Brown or R&B. I listened to a lot of music, though. I, I mean, I was always listening to a lot of music. I'm still, I still have records, albums that I bought at my local thrifty drugstore in the 59 cent bin, you know, and uh, I still have them. And I don't know. I I was really curious. I don't, I don't know why, but um I fell in love with the drums so much so that, you know, I was the guy with the flashlight under my my bed thing, supposed to be asleep and reading the Ludwig drum catalog, you know what I mean? And say, you know, one day I'd like to have that, or one day I'd like that. That's true of all musicians, you know, Some something like that happens. There's a certain obsession. There's a certain obsession, yeah. And so I, it was really when I got super serious was in the first year of college and there was a point where I was taking a class, uh, a literature class. And I also was considering being a writer because um, I, I love to read and that sort of thing as well. So I had a class where we were supposed to give um, a report about a book and I was one day late, you know, and I, I told the professor, you know, I'm going to be one day late, but it's going to be really good. I'm not put I'm not I'm working on it but and he said if you're one day late I'm going to give you an F I said you know I got to tell you something I know for a fact that I'm the only one in this class that cares about what you're talking about so I handed in late and he gave me an F and um I was pissed off you know and so I quit everything except for the big band which was at three o'clock every day and it was at that time when it was kind of a hippie time. It was us and them, you know what I mean? And I, so when my parents left for work, 
I, at 8 a.m., I had my drum set up in the living room. My parents were really gracious. And at 8 a.m., I started practicing. Like if I was, it was a job. And uh, I practiced all the way up until the time I needed to go to the school at three. And then at night, I would play in clubs. And uh, and at that point, I was taking it very seriously, you know, working um you know, working hard and, and, and slowing down like reel to reel tape recorder down to, you know, the slowest speed to figure like Tony Williams stuff out and things like that. And it paid off. And plus playing a lot, you know, playing a lot of different music um, helped a lot too. There's obviously a love of jazz that still continues to this day. Um, the fact that you played in a big band and I guess one could argue that maybe your drumming style was greatly influenced by that experience? Well, it was really, um, yes, it was greatly influenced by it. It was just, um, it's not that I ever played big man music after that, but it teaches you aspects of setting up something, you know, like a horn hit, you know, you know, that kind of stuff. And so, I mean, even when when I joined Santana, I all, I still played like a jazz guy, you know, I had rock and roll experience, but the only reason I had the technique and um, I had a swing feel more than like a regular straight rock, even though I could do that. So all the Latin stuff that I did with Santana, I played like a jazz jazz swing against what the other guys were doing. And it it gives it a a unique sound, you know, so it's not authentic. It's um, it's kind of a, a mutt hybrid way of playing but it was just what was natural and it fit did it fit immediately like did you know because like, i can't i love santana and when i see them play it's this this big rhythm section that just kind of carries yeah. the whole band and it's not just the drummer it's the congas it's everything but uh, when you have so much percussion behind you next to you yeah is it does it make you a different drummer Yes, absolutely, it does. It 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 makes it easier, as far as I was concerned, in 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 the initial because I could fit in with what I had, you know, and so I mean, even the other percussionists like uh, Michael Carabello, he's Puerto Rican, but he didn't play like a he played kind of backwards. Let's put it that way. Um, Chapito, the other Congo player, he's from Nicaragua, so it's it's different than say, you know, salsa in New York, but, and then me with my swing. And so, you know, we would work it out. We would practice the groove. I mean, most of the thing in Santana rehearsals, which was every day was just like the rhythm of the band, you know, I mean, the whole band was a rhythm section, Mm -hmm. you know, I mean, it was one big wall of rhythm. Um, when it really got going and um so but you do play differently and i enjoy it you know i enjoy it uh i mean it wasn't until like 20 years later i started learning the authentic stuff on drum set you know (laughs) so i mean it's kind of like you look back and you say i wish i would have learned more from chapito or i would have learned more been more inquisitive with you know armando parazza or these people but that's you know you know you're looking back 
but I mean, now that I'm older, I can see that really the best way to live is to take advantage of every situation you're in where you can learn something. And so that's why I'm determined now to learn what I need to learn now. And I'm trying, I'm trying to make it so I don't have to depend on other people so much, you know, but you know, it's also great to collaborate. Mm -hmm. Um, I love the story about how you joined the band. Can you share that with me again? Sure. I um, I grew up, in, unfortunately, I grew up in that time of the, you know, 68, 67, 68 period where there's, you know, hippie music. And I was in San Francisco and there were all these bands. I mean, in high school, I would see these bands and, I mean, the first time I saw Santana was in a church dance in Redwood City, California. And I told my brother, Kevin, who was with me, I said, I, I really want to play with those guys. And I saw them play in a park uh, with Jefferson Airplane and um, with Jefferson Airplane Santana in Palo Alto, California. And I was like, you know, I would see Jack Cassidy, you know, and, and Jefferson Airplane and Yorma and... and I was like, how do you, how does one get to be like that cool? <laughs> I mean, I was serious about music, but I was curious, like, what, do you, how did I get from here, there to, you know, it's like really, and then Santana played there as well. And also I was going to the Fillmore West all the time, Bill Graham's Fillmore West. And he did the most exciting combinations of music on a given night. He'd have Rossan Roland Kirk with, you know, the Grateful Dead or, Charles Lloyd, you know, with rock group blues, a lot of blues. And so I would go there all the time. It was about 30 miles from where I lived, but it was like Mecca. And so I saw this ad for this super session with uh, Michael Bloomfield, who I was a fan of Paul Butterfield Blues Band and that tune East West. I don't know if you're familiar with it. Mm -hmm. For sure. I mean, to me, it was like the sound of the time, you know, it was like, modal and it was just cool and um and so i saw that michael bloomfield was playing with stephen stills and al cooper and it was called super session apparently carlos did one of them too anyway i called all my music friends and i said let's go see if we can sit in you know and you're like 16 at this point right i was uh, about no i was about 17 okay maybe even you know early 19 i could i found out when i because i can look you can look up the dates of all these shows you know and I, I i should check that out but um and so everybody said oh sure right you know gonna go sit in and so i said you know screw it i i i, I borrow, borrow my father's car and i'll go up there just so i could say to myself at least i tried you know that's all and i didn't expect that i was gonna sit in so I got up there, you know, you're walking in the Fillmore, you smell the incense, you know, you walk past the barrel of apples that Bill Graham always had out and all the hippie chicks dancing. And I made it a point to like walk straight up to the stage before I lost my nerve. And uh, they're playing and I pulled on Michael Bloomfield's pants and he leaned down and I said, hey man, I'm a drummer, you think I can sit in? And I just figured he'd kick me in the face or tell me, you know, get, get, get the hell out of here, you know, kid, and this. And he says, oh, man, the drummer's a really nice guy. Let me ask him. 
And I'm like, oh, shit. And the next thing I know, and I swear to God, I don't even remember this, like how I got there. Next thing I know, I'm on the stage and I'm playing with these guys. And I tell you, I really know about post-traumatic stuff in, in a in post-traumatic light <laughs> because I don't even remember remember like that, that, you know? I was so, I don't know what, but I got off and I went backstage, which was a big deal on backstage. And the bass player and the manager of Santana were there and they came up and said, hey man, we're thinking about getting a new drummer. You know, would you be interested? And I said, sure, you know, um, here's my number, you know. And I saw them one more time uh, at, the, at a high school in my town of Redwood City. And then there was a recording studio in San Mateo. And I was hustling time there all the time from the owner, you know, trying to like my, for my groups to get some recording time. And so I remember that, that was in the days of, you know, the phone. Well, at any rate, all my this was a long distance call, even though it was like t 12 miles away or something. And my parents were like, what are all these long distance calls? You know, it's, it's just like 12. Anyway, I went there one night like I do. I did every once in a while or pretty often trying to get studio time and just kind of hang out. Literally, Marco, I was walking through the door and the Santana drummer was walking out the door. We literally passed our ways in the ourselves in the way in. I didn't know Santana was going to be there. And so, but a couple of guys remembered me from that night at the Fillmore, from going to sitting in. Carlos didn't know me, or you know, I didn't know. And they said, you know, you want to, you want to jam, you you you, you want to play. And so, we played for a long time. And then, when we were done. Um, couple of the guys pulled me in a room. I think it was Carlos and Greg Raleigh. And they said, do you want to join the band? Just like that. And I said, you know, let me check my schedule. <laughs> That's a, a joke that I said at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> people always wanted to know, how do you join? How do you get in this band? You know, this little white kid with all these guys. <laughs> And so, um, literally, here's what happened. They followed me home to my parents' house. Um, I woke up my folks in the middle of the night, and I said, okay, I'm going to go now. I'm going to go join this band, <laughs> and I'll be in touch. And so I got in their car, and I drove up with them to the Mission District in San Francisco. And I took my place on the couch, and that's how I got in Santana. So this conjures up a few questions. One is that young kid who goes to the Fillmore and says, I want to jam. I want to go up there and play with the, play with the Super Session guitar players. So what were you thinking? Like, were you a very confident person that thought, I can do this? This is, if I ask, there's a chance that they, this will happen? Or um, were you totally confident in your ability as a drummer to to make that offer and and see what happens. I guess I was, you know, I mean, um, I should probably say this also. 
prior to Santana, joining Santana, there was a chance that I was going to be in Jefferson Airplane. Now, I don't know how they found some person told them about me and they were maybe, you know, um, Skip, what's his name? Spencer Dryden, the drummer, that he was leaving or something. And so I used, and so they invited me up to their Fulton Street mansion in San Francisco and we would play all the time. I, I, my first airplane ride, my a, a ride on an actual airplane was with uh, Jack and Yorma from Jefferson Airplane, and Buddy Miles was on that flight. And that's the first time I was ever on a plane. And they invited me to come along to uh, L.A. to they were recording, um, making the record, and. I mean, this sounds like Forrest Gump, you know, but um, I'm staying with I'm staying with Yorma Kalkinen in the I think it's the the hotel Flamingo or something. I'm wrong with that, but where a lot of the rock people stayed. So I, here I am. I'm probably I don't know. I'm probably 18 now, um, and since this is before Santana, right? So I I had to be, but I was driving. So. I'm with Yorma, and so Jim Morrison drops by, you know, says hello. Eric Clapton comes by with the cassette tape that he was very excited about, really like excited about. As a new group called the band, <laughs> it wasn't released yet. And I go to the studio with with the guys, and I hang out. I guess they're just trying to, you know, either check me out or sort of introduce. And so I'm at the studio and David Crosby comes in with this tune that the birds had declined. It was called Triad. And um, I watched them record that. And then for some reason, it didn't work out, you know, with the, with those guys. I don't know why. I mean, but that's how I, you know, I knew them after that. And I was living in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco. I was um, kind of shocked how, how what I, because I thought that's where the music is and I, I want to go where the music is. I would go over to Elton Bishop's house around the corner and somehow we met and we'd jam, but it was really nasty, you know? It was, it was a mess. It wasn't beautiful, you know, love and peace power. And I had, I was practicing because I was always playing rudiments and I was playing, you know, I was disciplined. And I had a mantra, like, I'm not a hippie, not a hippie, not a hippie, not, not a hippie, not a hippie, flat, flat, not, you know? I was like, I'm not here to be a hippie. I'm here to, like, do the music. And it was di it was difficult. And I, I, my parents were going to a concert up there on a Sunday, and and my mother, I've been there a while in the Hayton, and um, we were at an outdoor concert. Uh, at Stern Grove in San Francisco, beautiful place. And my mother turned to me and said, Mike, would you ever consider coming back home? <laughs> and I immediately said, yes. <laughs> and so I went back um, and it made things easier. You know, um, I could actually practice more and um, with my drum kit and this, that, and the other. And, and so that's when I was living at home when the Santana thing happened, but I had already left home. I'd already gone to LA. 
with the airplane. I was playing with them. And so really, I mean, it's just how the universe works. The airplane wouldn't have been a good place for me. You know, my my music thing was different. And when I hear the record, like David Crosby's first solo album, I listen to it and I'm like, wow. I mean, it's so hippie, you know, I'm trying to play. You know. um, but it's some people's favorite album. I mean, that record, you know. But I was really more of a kind of jazz and groove drummer, you know. I mean, I I I learned all the James Brown stuff, and I would go in clubs. I don't know why they let me in, and I I'd, I'd sit in like with the latest James Brown groove, you know, because <laughs> I went to the places where that was being played. I mean, I played in a band in a place in Palo Alto called the Nairobi Lounge. I swear to God, I was the only white person in there, you know except for the organ player but i mean it, it was so like this that girls would come up to me and say can i touch your head you know can i touch your head <laughs> <laughs> you see what it feels like you know what i mean yeah it was like i mean we i backed up like you know blues players and like uh etta james and you know we were the house band and then the house band was like a you know the lead singer was called shell nitro you know <laughs> kind of playing you know rb you know, like otis redding and stuff like that um and i loved it i was completely into that stuff so um and then i played at another club that where i was learning how to play jazz like an organ quartet or organ trio it's where i really learned in a small group environment rather than a big band like how to hear eight bars 16 bars and how to you know just the basics of of that and, and that was so i was gigging you know um you know not 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 as other people were gigging four years old but you know i, I wonder when, when i talk to musicians who are not real jazz musicians but love jazz they will say i'm not really a jazz player because that's a life pursuit and you got to be really dedicated um I would presume that you would put yourself as a jazz player? Nope. I would say the same thing as uh, those people would say, you know. But you've dedicated a lot of your life to jazz. Well, yes, but since I'm pretty intimate with jazz and I aspired to be a jazz drummer, but life took a, another turn, right? And so I don't play jazz a lot and I can hear it in my cymbal. You know, I can see that, you know, it's like you said, it's a lifelong thing. You know, we talk about drummers where that's what they do. And you can you can hear if you know it well enough, you can hear if you're there or not when you hear a jazz guy and this, that and the other. But I was very influenced by it. I was very influenced by players like Jack DeJohnette and Elvin and all kinds of them. I mean, I mean, on Santana albums, I... I played stuff that, except for Mitch Mitchell, you know, um, like you wouldn't play that way in a rock band. I mean, I would go over the bar. I would do this and that with fills, like in pop songs, right. and not the not the big hits, you know, but um, in other material. And I can hear my influence in there. And so, you know, it's interesting. I mean, you, you as you get older, you kind of reflect, and and every once in a while in your life, you have to you have to stop and kind of assess where you are and assess where you want to go 
And a way to do that sometimes is, okay, like I used to, CDs were still happening. Um, I'd, I'd burn a CD of my favorite plane of myself, you know, and I'd take a car ride and see, okay, what am I excellent at? And what do I, what do I enjoy? And, and I would say, you know, move your music into that. That feels like, you know, it's natural for you. And, um, you know, I mean, I'm constantly in the process of doing that. And, and I'm a little too hard on myself. I should have put more stuff out, which is why I'm doing it now. You know, if you go to my Bandcamp page, you 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 can see stuff that I've done. And other stuff was just like I've done stuff with electronics. And uh, I mean, I have whole shows where I'm just doing electronics. You wouldn't even hear me playing like drums, but they'd be uh, just a sonic thing. And then there's another one where I'm you know, combine them and stuff like that. So I think as you get older also, I mean, to be frank, everybody wants to like be aware of what their legacy is, you know? And so you have an opportunity to round it out more with these new tools in a place like Bandcamp where you don't need a record company and, you know, you can present yourself through a wider lens, let's put it that way. Well, okay, going back to the jazz idea, one could argue that maybe through your influence, because I, I believe you might have introduced jazz to Carlos. Um, right. And, and one could say that maybe some of the albums might have been more yeah. jazz influenced than rock. When you look at the first few albums you did with Santana, from the first album to Abraxas, to the third album, then to Caravanserai and Welcome... How how much did that was that driven because of the success you had initially and and the success that you had initially was that a negative or was that a positive? I mean, I can't be a negative, but yeah, it was definitely a positive. But um, but Carlos and I went on a different direction um, at a certain point after the third album, and so you know. It, it was a sign of the times. The times were, you know, young rock people making a lot of music and there was a lot of drugs around, you know? And so also simultaneously, the jazz changed radically. I mean, Coltrane and then Miles Davis with Bitches Brew. And that really turned Carlos and I around, you know? It was like here Miles was trying to get out of the jazz thing and like relate more to young people because he was seeing the Fillmore filling up with all these white kids, you know, and he he said, I, I got to play like twice as many shows where these rock people make a lot of money. He went to Bill Graham and said, I want to play at the Fillmore or Clive Davis or somebody. And, and so he started, you know, he started adapting his music and trying to make it more palatable, but it's, it's never going to be rock, but it's going to be the combination of different elements. And, and I mean, out of that came, you know, Mahavishnu weather report, you know, this whole movement of stuff that Carlos and I were attracted to. And Caravanserai came about, Carlos and I had, had like, a lot of parallel paths and um, there were a lot of drugs and, 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 you know, we made a decision that we didn't want to die. And also 
our musical tastes were changing. And so we stopped doing drugs. We both got gurus, separate gurus, but we got, you know, pretty spiritual and disciplined. And we wanted to be a voice of the times. You know, we wanted to reflect the musical times. And that's how Caravan Sarai came about. That, you know, let's make an album that, you know, I mean, you know, the first track is like a, you know, it sounds terribly like Feral Sanders, you know. So, I mean, we were copying all these feels and sounds and we were listening to everything from not just those fusion groups. I mean, Return to Forever was happening too, right? And I mean, I was into Return to Forever before Lenny White was in it and it got heavy when Ayrton was playing drums and, and um, Flora was singing. And I would study Ayrton and his touch. And he, you know, it's just more exciting to me than playing rock and roll. But to me, I never played rock and roll. I don't consider myself a, a good rock and roll drummer. It's like, I'll give you an example. I did this record with Sammy Hagar and Neil mm -hmm. Sean. Great album. <laughs> so Sammy Hagar said in his book, in his um, memoir, he said, yeah, so for that thing, yeah, we got Michael Shreve as a drummer. He's a great rhythm and roll drummer, but he ain't no rock drummer, you know? <laughs> and I, I, I laughed out loud and I said, you know, it's true. You know, it's true. And I, I, I never took offense to it because he's right. I mean, I can't even hit the drum that hard, you know? So um, the way they do now, and I, nor do I want to. You know, it was the same thing when I heard Billy Cobham with uh, Mahavishnu Orchestra the first time, you know, San Francisco, everybody was there. I mean, all the drummers, all the guitar players. And, you know, it's like once I wipe myself, you know, off the the wall that I have been slapped into and fell down to the floor, I realized I'm never going to play like that. You know, I'm never going to play. It's just it's just inhuman. But I don't want to play like that either. And, and I realized it. I had a conversation with Bill Frizzell, the guitar player, about he got his style, right? And he said, I saw Mahavishnu once in, in Denver when I was living. And I realized I'm never going to play like that. I could never play like that. So I better find some some other way of playing, you know? So, I mean, those are positive things as, as well. But, um, but yeah, everybody has to find their own voice. And part of the, that process is being really honest with yourself and really working towards, it's, it's just, I'm, I'm learning this more and more, even to, to Last night at four in the morning, I was up and I was reading this book. I was thinking how crazy everything is now. Just crazy. And why do you, you know, you're, you're just like, you know, on Twitter too much. You're walk, watching too much news. And I mean, I also last night, the reason I was up at four is because I had a dream that I was in an active shooter situation, you know, and it was like, I said, I've got to change my focus. And so I have a bunch of books on Kindle and like spiritual books. And and one of them was, you know, it was amazing because it was uh, talking about this thing where 
you have to be able to listen to the voice that's in your head. You have to be able to be attracted to things that you really want to be attracted to. And that's the, that, that's the spiritual guidance, that voice in your head. Um, and it went deeper into what that voice is. And it's not necessarily God, but, you know, it's a spiritual thing and it's giving you the answers. I mean, the whole article was about, you don't have to look at, you don't have to look outside. You look inside and it's all there. Like, follow that. And it just reinforced to me, I mean, this is like seven hours ago, that more important than ever in this kind of period of time, that you have to quiet yourself enough so that you can hear the voice in your head that will give you guidance and direction as to where you go. And you have to believe it, you know? You you know how it is. I mean, I've said, oh, I, I, I hear this, I want to do this, and then, and then life takes over. Or it's not loud enough. You, you don't believe it, you know? And so what they recommend is write down the things that you, like, like pass through your mind, you know, that you say, oh, in a flash, I could do this, or I'm interested in this. Start writing them down, you know, and and focusing on them. And so it, it's just, um, you know, it becomes more than like being a drummer. It, it becomes more than this stuff. I mean, I've always been interested in sound and color and vibration that, you know, those kind of esoteric things, you know? And so, and I realized like there was a reason why I was interested in it. And, and so now that's why I'm working on with AI art, you know, so that I can learn how to put things together and make it animate and, and I can put music to that, you know? And so I'm looking for ways to do that. And it's fun, which is the other thing. And so it's a, it's just an interesting, we each have our own interesting paths and we are all individual and, you know, it's, it's truly a journey. You know, I don't have, I don't have the desire to, you know, like I turned down doing Woodstock 50, for instance, you know, and Carlos was like, wow, you know, Greg didn't do it either. But, um, and my reason is because there's no win there. There's no win there. Plus, I have no desire to go back. I mean, all everybody's going to do, because my performance, I looked like I was 16, and it was this beautiful young boy, like in passion and this, that, and the other. And that's what people love, you know? Leave it at that. Sometimes it's better to leave well enough alone. But it takes some wisdom to know that, you know? And, and that's why... I have no regrets about that whatsoever. Finding your own voice. When you have success as quickly as you did at a young age, and you know, I think of like Abraxas is one of the perfect albums in my collection. It's one of the first albums I ever bought. It's an album I still listen to many, many years later. I'd be curious to hear what you think about that album. But when you had the success that you did with Santana that, at that young age, yeah. I would presume that distorts things a bit. But when did you find your own voice? Like, did you feel like coming out of the gates with such success that as a drummer you had found your own voice? Or did you look back on it and go, no, that's not really me? No, it was me, you know? It was me. I mean, uh, yeah, I, there's no way I could say that that wasn't me. Maybe a couple particular tunes where I don't feel like I'm so great at, but but it was me. 
But at the same time, parallel to that, um, while I was in Santana, I was still, you know, listening to and discovering more left of center stuff. You know, that's how I discovered Stomu Yamashita, you know, from, from Go. I mean, so because of Soul Sacrifice, I was obliged to do a drum solo every night. So I listened to and make tapes of great jazz solos, great, you know, solos. And I'd listen to percussion ensemble music, like, you know, just looking for ideas. One day I was in a record store in Berkeley, California. And there was this record playing. And there was, they, that was in the days where they put out the cover that they were playing, you know, they like display, here's the music. And this was a gatefold record of this guy, Stomi Amashita. And he had a stage full of drums and percussion, all, all kinds of stuff. And he was leaping in the air and he had long hair down here and he's Japanese guy. And, and he had a timpani stick in his mouth and he was leaping through the air. And I said, who is this? You know, I mean, I really related to his abstract percussion and he was a serious percussion serious composers were composing european composers were composing for him right and um and then he left that world i later so later i got into who is this guy and i bought all his records and he left that world and he started a theater company in london like a japanese kind of you know theater company with you know i'm forgetting the what it is but kabuki yeah like a kabuki influences and and so i thought and then i realized this these are the kind of people that i i love there's a word for them but um i love people that you know attracted to it you know i mean i would listen to sound sculptures and things like this so i've always had a curiosity and so one of the first things I did was try to pursue Stomu, you know, and find him. It took me a year. And we were both staying in a hotel in Rome at the same time. And so we met and... Wasn't wasn't Steve Winwood in that band as well? Yes. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that was a, that was a real... Th- so here's what... I met Stomu Yamashita and... Um, I wanted to do what he was doing. I wanted to do experimental percussion, you know. I wanted to come out of this rock world and hook up with this experimental Japanese experimental percussion artist. And I just loved it. it was so it was so abstract but so meaningful and I related to it and I wanted to break out of my what everybody knew me for as well, but I was attracted to it. Anyway, what he wanted to do was start a pop group. <laughs> you know, but with interesting people. And so, of course, I said yes uh, when they asked me. And, I mean, come on, Steve Winwood. I mean, I remember driving into my high school parking lot and I'm listening to Steve Winwood. So that was nothing less than a thrill. But the surprise and the good thing about about moving towards interesting people, I learned this from Stomu, is from them, you're going to meet other interesting people. You know? And that's the beauty of it. It's like a social internet, you know? But I don't mean social media. I mean, like, you know, real time, like, oh, he's got these kind of friends, you know? And I mean, literally, like, 
with Stomu, he used to have famous film directors drop by, famous fashion directors, you know. He was just, he was into, you know, all this stuff. And I thought, this is a rich world, you know. This is like full of variety. And um, and through him, I met Klaus Schultz. And I'd never even heard of him before. And he, I don't know if you're familiar with him, but he's one of the masters of, uh, you know, German synthesis. Mm-hmm. And so I was blown away by him, just unbelievable. And and so later I proposed that, you know, he and I do some work together and, I, and you know, and so that's the beauty of it. I mean, in my, this album, Drums of Compassion, for instance, I pursued Evelyn Glennie. I don't know if you're familiar with her. She's a, Google her sometime. And um, she's a force of nature. She's a classically trained percussionist and she's deaf. Wow. She plays in bare feet and she plays with all the greatest symphonies in the world. Now, you know, but I pursued her to be on Drums of Compassion. And I mean, I went down to San Francisco and met her and because um, she was performing and I, I did I did everything I could. And I was all set up for to record in Seattle. And she called at the last minute because she was doing a show. She said, Michael, I'm so sorry. I have to bow out. I'm, I'm presenting a premiere that I commissioned tonight. And I, I, I just need to focus, you know, so. But the idea is that I, I really like enjoy these interesting people that are thinking in different ways. And um, and I enjoy a good pop song, too. You know, I enjoy a good rap song. I mean, I, you know, there's there's artists of those that I, I, I really like. So but one of the fun things about the Internet and Bandcamp um, is the the discovery of new music. And I found that most of my peers, even musical peers, meaning my age, like they're stuck in the past, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, one way or another, it's kind of like, okay, this is the music I like, you know? <laughs> and, and and it will be, you know? Um, Carlos is the only guy I know where, you know, we explore. I don't know anybody who explores as much as me. I mean, except for him. We've been talking a lot, in the la- texting a lot in the last couple of years. I didn't talk to him f- for quite a while after the Santana 4 thing, but and he wanted to do a new caravan Sarai, you know? And so we exchanged music, like it's just, <laughs> we keep blowing each other's minds, which is what we used to do after the shows. He and I would get together in the hotel room. I mean, we had roadies, right? So I'd bring a trunk of LPs and a portable record player and everybody else would be out partying and we'd be in the room like listening to Aretha or listening to Bitches Brew or, you know, and so we have, we share that love of music and, and it's really fun. I just, I don't know. I mean, again, I don't know if I want to go back and try to make a caravan Sarai. And also it's a different, I just have a hard time with that, you know, but. Was it weird going back and doing Santana four? Well, yes, that's true. That was going back. Yep. Um, um, yeah. In some ways, it wasn't a great experience. So, mm-hmm. um, 
so you know i'm thinking you know i i, I don't want to get personal but um but it's sort of like um it's tempting um but it would just it would be me and him and and then you know his people i i don't know um it's i have a strange relationship you know i i, I love him dearly and then you know time i don't know i don't even know how to explain it but we'll see you know can i ask um was it difficult leaving the band initially i mean it sounded like you were kind of ready for it i think you were the last of the original members to leave santana mm-hmm. um it also sounds like and i i recall i mean you you played with stone movie on day and you also played in automatic man you did with yeah. played with sammy hagar you, you did a lot of things and you did a lot of yeah. studio work was that basically the goal was just to kind of settle down do more recordings as opposed to tour all over the place or no that wasn't the impetus well okay so we were working on borboletta that record and i had co-written a tune that flora sang i also brought brazilian music into the band and so i was a big fan of those drummers and trying to learn that and so we wrote we i wrote the lyrics for a song that richard Cremode, the keyboard keyboard player who's brilliant at latin and brazilian and and flora sang it and i just so it's one of my favorite tracks i've ever played right because it's like got that authentic it doesn't sound like i'm a tourist and um and so ayerto and flora were in the uh studio and carlos asked if he would consider playing drums on on this tune and Ayrto said, "Let me let me hear it." And so he played the track with me playing, and Ayrto said, "I'm not touching a fucking thing on that." <laughs> you know, and I was like, "Thank you, Ayrto." And but it was getting to that point where I felt like, you know, how how dare you? I mean, that's my track, you know. And that's when I realized this is his band now, and it's time for me to go and and. I've been thinking about it for a, a while anyway. It wasn't a single because I was in, interested in, in pursuing my stuff further. Um, but the incident that happened was I woke up one night and I thought I was dying. I was in pain so much. And I was living with my brother, Kevin, and I, I, I literally crawled into his room and I said, please drive me to the hospital. And I didn't know what was happening. I was scared to death. And so when I got to the hospital, I made a promise to myself, if I get through this, I'm going to do the things that I've been talking about doing for a while. And one of them is leaving the band and talking to myself about, right? So I woke up alive and, and you know, we were about to go on tour. The tour was booked. And I called the office and said, I'm leaving the band just like that. And they said, you can't, you know, we doing this book. And I said, I, I knew I had to have resolve, but I also knew that I, I made this promise to myself on what could have been my, what I thought was maybe my deathbed. And so I couldn't break that promise to myself. And Carlos came and, you know, we talked and stuff. And so, you know, he immediately got Miles Davis's drummer <laughs> in Google, and, um, and that was that, 
because I made that promise to myself on what I thought might be my deathbed, it, it was a kidney stone. I hear they can be quite painful. Yeah. You know, comparable childbirth, right? So um, anyway, and that was that. And then I had a house that was being worked on. Uh, it, like I bought it when it was incomplete. And I said, okay, I'm going to do something special for myself. And I'm going to go to this place in Mexico that's a health place, right? And it, it's pretty expensive. But I said, you know, you, you're in a transition. What you got to do is get away be in a healthy environment. I also brought my drums and had a cabin, but it was just this place that was a, like a health spa. And I stayed there for a month and got some clarity. And then after that, I started Automatic Man, is what I did, which is really a kind of a rock group, but it was more than that. And um, I was also very much into conceptual stuff you know i was never into pink floyd i was never into led zeppelin um which now i you know i was a snob musically based you know basically i mean now i i get that stuff and i you know i really like it but i like some some of it but i was i was a snob but i think i think that that that's okay you know when you're younger because it helps define yourself you know you become aware that of what you don't want to be which eliminates a lot of stuff it, it's like a, it's like a sculpture you know you're sculpting yourself and uh and so it took me a while to get into that stuff but i was into conceptual stuff i, I went to see a performance of the wall and um i brought a, a a local jazz keyboard player who was like a young genius and i told him about an idea i had to you know make a group that like it was conceptual, but highest quality musicians and writing stuff like that, but not jazz. And um, anyway, so that was that was Todd Cochran, Baete he was at the time, and that was the seed for um, Automatic Man. You know, how well did that band do? It didn't do well. Um, I know I had that album. Yeah, and we are in the process of trying to re-release it. And uh, if we can get the the tapes, remix it, and, and you know, do a, a nice re-release of it, which I'm doing with Transfer Station Blue as well. Yeah, so the one I did with Klaus Schultz. But um, but anyway, you know, at the same time in London that I was, so we got signed by Island Records, Chris Blackwell, and the Go Project was also on Island Records. So I went to London with the band and I was doing both. I, I, I was recording Go and rehearsing Automatic Man. Um, and it was a busy, but you know, really fruitful time. And um, yeah. Well, you did a lot of recordings then. You recorded with Roger Hudson and you had recorded with Mick Jagger and Todd Rundgren and various people. You also, I think, did a session with Jaco Pastorius. Yeah, it never came out. I've never heard it. What's, what's your recollection of that session? Well, um, after being in um, Nassau, Bahamas with Mick Jagger, I'm going to drop names now, but um, <laughs> I was staying with Mick, he and I, at Chris Blackwell's house. And Jeff Beck was on the record. So, you know, anyway, we've done the record. And um, 
I had only I ended up do, being on just one a single track on it, um, the opening track, but it was with um, Jeff Beck and Pete Townsend and Herbie Hancock and Dagger and and so anyway, went back to New York and. I was in the studio at the power station with Mick Jagger and Nile Rogers, who was mixing it, working on some of the tracks. And I'm up there and um, I'm just hanging out, really, you know. And and Jaco Pastorius runs in the room, comes in the room. I open the door and said, Michael, I heard you were here. He's got his, his face paint on, you know, like Indian face paint. He used to wear that stuff. And Mick, and, you know, they're like, he said, Mike, I got all the cats downstairs. You know, I got all these guys. I go, it's like three in the morning, two, two in the morning or something. And so I went down there. There was another drummer, Ricky Sebastian, a really, really great, like New Orleans drummer. And the best horn players in town. And, and so we recorded just jamming kind of. Um, and so I never heard it, but I, I ran into Jocko on the street. One time he said, Hey, how you doing? Like I said, I'm good. Hey man, what happened to those tapes? You know? He said, They won't give them to me. I said, Wow, did you pay your bill? <laughs> <laughs> and he said, Well, no, but you know, that that was that. I used to go see Jocko a lot when I lived in New York City, down at the fifty five bar was Mike Stern and and that stuff. That was, was crazy times. But yeah, yeah. You know, incredible, incredible people. So I was watching a drum solo that you did. And for some reason, you started off with the traditional grip. And then in the middle of the drum solo, you switched it to, the I, I don't know what it's called when it's a matching grip. Yeah. like, And I don't know why, but I've never noticed anybody else do that. Uh, okay. A lot, a lot of people do it now. Um, there's a certain... I grew up playing the the um, traditional grip, and right. um, there came a time like, well, I was also playing, um, you know, percussion pads, uh, electronic stuff, and it was much easier to play match grip on these pads rather than this, you know, because it's not drums; it's like four pads here, four pads here. Much easier to do like a timpani type of grip. As time gone by. <clears throat> My facility with the traditional grip, I, I seem to have lost it. I don't know why. Hmm. But can you do everything with the match grip that you do with the traditional grip? No, which is why I, I changed it, you know. Um, when I play rolls and fast stuff like that, I, I, I'm better at, with the traditional. And I'm still working on getting that sort of facility with um, with uh, match grip. But I, I, I really, you know, I mean... I, I basically play completely matched, you know, unless I need to do like super fast stuff, but I'm constantly working on it. Okay. The other question is stick people podcast, which is you talking with some pretty heavy duty other drummers. Is that a pandemic project? Is that, well, how did that begin? Yeah, that happened in the pandemic. And um, I think Lenny White and I had the idea. You see that picture in the background right there? Yeah, that's me and Lenny, like taken by Jim Marshall when we were like both 20 years old, <laughs> you know, so so Lenny was playing in Return to Forever and I was in Santana and 
we were both of the same age. He was master jazz drummer. And also, you know, could do other stuff, of course. And we became good friends. Um, we just hit it off, you know. And so he would always be at the house. I mean, he plays, he, you know, come down. He stayed in San Francisco a lot, even when he wasn't playing there. And he played castanets on one of the, on one of the Abraxas tunes, I think. Uh, if it wasn't Abraxas, maybe it was something else. I think it was Abraxas. But <laughs> he played castanets on it. So, okay. So Lenny and I um, came up with the idea of why don't we have conversations with Bay Area drummers and about what was happening at that amazing time between 68, 73. David Garibaldi from Tower of Power was a good friend and we used to live together. He used to live at my house and I saw him play for the first time. I have a really good podcast about it. I I, I interviewed him. I used to have a or kind of a radio show but I first heard him I'd been hearing about him but I hadn't been on the road you know so I had tapes and I went to see him in a club and it was unbelievable and I introduced myself and I said where are you living you know and he said well I'm, I'm in Oakland but I'm looking for a place you know and I said come live with me I'm in Mill Valley I've got room I got a, I got a big house you know and so we moved in so we would play together as well Mike Clark, um, you know, I was a big fan of his, but he was very much a part of that Bay Area scene. Um, so let's see who else we got. Gregorico, of course, from Sly and the Family Stone. And and so we started doing Zooms three times a week, and I recorded them all. I've, I've got them all. And so we would just talk about what it was like at that time and the music scene and just like how we met and what music was going on, how it was such a, a melting pot of stuff in the Bay Area at that time. And Lenny played in that band as Tekka, you know, with the with the Escovito brothers. And so we did it, but we also couldn't wait to do it, you know? I mean, all our wives had to wait because we did, we had to do it at six o'clock, <laughs> but because of the times. And so it was... Um, it was like a brother, a brotherhood thing, you know. I mean, we could have done it once a week, but we loved it so much that we did it three times a week. So we kind of put an idea out to some people of can we do something with this? And nothing ever happened. But then we found a producer named Mike Charlash. And he's a guy in the Bay Area who's, you know, worked at record companies and publicity and he's still does it. Anyway, he saw the potential and offered to do it and we had got an editor. We didn't have a lot of money to, you know, make it. And he made it. The ones that you're seeing now are the ones that he's produced because it became more presentable, you know. Right. Uh, and now we're, you know, I mean, he taught us like how to use, you know, get better sound, look better, you know, the zooms, and that's what that was. So it's called Stick People. If you want to check it out on YouTube. Yeah, it's called Stick People, and. um we haven't done one in a while. Last person I think we did was Jack D. Jeanette. Um, but that's uh, quite a list of people. Um, I'd like to expand it more myself. Um, but we haven't done one in a while. I'm sure we'll catch up. Okay, so I should wrap up soon. But let me finish off by asking you about Drums of Compassion. You've been working on this for over 10 years. Tell me a little bit about this project. 
Drums of compassion. Okay. All right. So I came home. I, I used to go out. I'm in Seattle. I used to go out a lot uh, to a couple of clubs and, you know, hear music, sit in, stuff like that. Um, after after the family was asleep, I'd go out. and um, So I'd come home late often, you know, like two o'clock. And I came home one night and I said, and when I come home and listen to music, um, it's never like beat music i would listen to like choral music and this kind of thing and just like set in an environment that was chill and i asked myself when I, it came to me what kind of record could you put out as a drummer that you would put on at this hour would want to put it on at this hour to satisfy your needs right. you know just the best way to make music and so this idea came and i started writing notes down and and I didn't want it to be backbeat music. And I liked ambient music and I was into synthesis. So I I got together with a guy named Jeff Grinky in Seattle, who's like a sound designer since, you know, space music. And and I was playing like 16 tom-toms standing up in a semicircle. And I wanted to, you know, solo, but I really wanted the drums to speak. And I wanted it to be a certain vibe, you know? And so that's how it started. It was just me and Jeff Grinky. I know the pandemic was in, in between, but why did it take 10 years to do this or more? Procrastination, um, fear. Um, to be honest, I kept working on it. So, I mean, eventually I, I, I added people because it sounded too new agey to me. And I added Jack DeJanette. Zakir Hussein, Ayrto Olatunji does an invocation on it. And the, the, the name of the record comes from him, him, his drums of passion, which is like our first song on the radio was written by him, Jingo. So it's kind of full circle. Now I've got other players on there like Trey Gunn and Amon Tobin. And so I keep adding to it, you know, and I keep conceptualizing it. And I keep, you know, just like this and this. And then the other side of it, I realized like after like much inner perspective and talking to like a not a shrink, but somebody like that. And I literally asked the question, why what's keeping me from putting this record out? And talking through it, bam, it hit me. I said, I know I'm not putting it out. It's because I love it so much. And once I put it out, nobody's going to give a shit. <laughs> you know, it's just like, it's it's kind of precious to me. And if I put it out, you know, it's just, you know, there's so many records out, blah, blah, blah. And so I, I understood what the reason that it's taking me so long. And I kept adding stuff or taking stuff out and, reworking it which i'm still doing but um but i realized that um, i'm afraid of what people would think not because i'm be you know upset but just you know i didn't want to let it out into the world it was almost like i could have it by myself you know right. and so and at that point i realized okay now you know why now you got to put it out you know so you can move on yeah. you know well but it's not like you haven't been doing anything else no, I'm, I mean, every, I'm working on a really nice record now with this guy, Sam Morrison, and 
it's really cool. Um, and I'm, you know, I, I like to do a lot of different things. So, but that's the story behind Drums of Compassion. It has beautiful artwork, and I'm I'm going to be really excited. I found a place to release it, and um, I wanted to win a Grammy. <laughs> I, I never talk like that. I don't, I don't even think like that. But um, I think it's, it's you know, it's got weight. And I think it could win like a New Age Grammy. Because it's not world music, really. I don't know what it is. But um, so I'm actually timing the release uh, for, for next year's Grammy. Because um, I won't be able to release it in time this year, probably, with the label schedule. But, you know... That's the story behind Drums of Compassion and why Michael was afraid to put it out. Oh, it's, it's a great story. Thank you so much for doing this. Um, my final question, I'm, I'm curious that that Jack Cassidy vision that you saw of this really cool dude, once you became a musician in a big band like Santana, did you achieve that coolness? <laughs> well, you know, I did my best. I did my best. I mean, I... I was young and pretty, you know, so I could, it, but I was a serious musician, but I, I, I know the scene, you know, uh, and I enjoyed it. Um, so obviously I was thinking of that stuff. Um, and, you know, and then when I, when I did the go thing with Steve Winwood, I took it a step too far. And, uh, and then's when I, that's when I realized like, okay, you know, you, you, you know, Come back to your senses and uh, just be a musician. I mean, that's one of the things about the Woodstock question. Everybody just, it's all about Woodstock. It's all about Woodstock. And I was always saying, oh, have you heard this? Have you heard this? It wasn't until 35 years old where I realized, okay, here's what you got to do. You got to get over this Woodstock thing. You have to be gracious and you have to be grateful. And you have to say thank you when people say that instead of trying to, convince him to listen to this or that and i said to myself be free of it and and do whatever you want be free to do whatever you want because people don't care anyway all they care about is woodstock <laughs> so so it really freed me up I, I said don't don't fight it be gracious say thank you and then feel free to do whatever music you want to do it was kind of like a eye opener in the middle of a in the middle of fifth avenue in new york city Interesting. Well, I know that, you know, I had the Automatic Man album. I had the HSAS album, um, the Stomu Yamashite album as well. Um, but the Woodstock movie was probably the first time I ever saw a drum solo. I know that my love of drums probably was influenced greatly by that performance. And it's like a true honor to be speaking to you today. And I thank you so much for giving me this time. Sure. Have you heard the um, Tanglewood solo? I have, and I, to be honest, it's probably this emotional connection, but... Um, yeah, Woodstock, I get it. I completely yeah. get it. I mean, I don't like the solo, but <laughs> I mean, but I look at it, I mean, every once in a while, I look at it, and I say, I get it. I mean, it's just, it's just unbelievable, the combination of visual and music, you know, so yeah. um, it's... And, and, you know, I mean, I work in video, so I kind of know that it's really hard to capture a live performance to make it seem good. And maybe being there would have been 10 times better, but it's a pretty, yeah, like it's a pretty amazing performance. And it, it just, 
it it has aged very well if it's aged at all like i i can watch it you know i think i watched it a couple weeks ago and it still sounded amazing to me and the energy was amazing and uh so thank you for that you know who edited that no martin scorsese oh that's right 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 with Thelma. yeah but i mean my parents took me to see that movie and it's you know it kind of defined that's when i kind of woke up to music so all those bands that i saw are still bands that I listen to, and um, it means a great deal to me to to speak to you today. My pleasure, Marco. Thank you. Take good uh, care.